Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming, joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church this morning on this beautiful Lord's Day. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them out? Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the seventh chapter. Mark chapter seven. As you make your way there, uh, we're having a parenting conference here, and that's a good thing. I, I, I thought about that, actually. Uh, between the services, thinking that I probably make, make, need to make sure that my wife gets me signed up for that. Um, I don't know how many of you have kind of faced some of the things that, that Caroline and I face. We, we've got, most of you have met Charlie. Charlie is our kindergartner. He's all 100% boy. And by that I mean when he gets up in the morning, the time he goes to bed at night, he is on fire. He is wide open. Uh, some of you, I'm seeing, y'all have had him in Sunday school and you've got him in Awana. You know what I'm talking about. Um, the other thing about Charlie is he loves to play and he loves to play outside. And when he plays outside, he likes to get dirty. And uh, lots of times his hand, I mean, he'll pick up a lizard, a bug. It doesn't matter. I mean, he's into everything. And, and all that's fine and good. Here's the issue. When we call him in at night to come eat dinner, the dude doesn't think one thing about going and washing his hands. That's never even been a concept he's thought of. And so he'll sit down and we'll say, Charlie, have you washed your hands? And lots of times he doesn't even answer. He just, oh, I forgot again. And he gets up and he runs to the bathroom all the while we're yelling at him over it. Make sure you use soap, you know, because it's that. And it's one of those kind of things. It's proven to be a slow process, but we're trying to teach him that good hygiene is actually good for him. You know, that it promotes good health and all that. Although somebody walked out this morning and they said to me, they said, you know what the old phrase is, right? And I said, what's that? They said, God made dirt and dirt don't hurt. And I thought, well, y'all try to tell Caroline that and just see if she'll buy that. We're doing everything we can to try to teach him that he needs to wash his hands before he eats because it's an important thing to maintain good health. Well, as I was preparing for this sermon this morning, as we continue through our study of the Gospel of Mark, I was kind of alerted to the fact that Charlie's not the only one who has ever found himself under the scrutiny and even the criticism of other people who were wondering whether or not they had washed their hands before they ate. As a matter of fact, when we come to our text this morning in Mark chapter 7, we find that the disciples had not been practicing good hand washing according to the scribes and the Pharisees who had come from Jerusalem and they had observed the fact that, that, that the disciples weren't, weren't doing things the way that they thought they should be. And so they cornered Jesus and they asked him, why don't your disciples do what the rest of us are doing? And that is washing our hands. Now, it's important that we recognize, though, when these Pharisees and these scribes came and, and confronted Jesus here, they weren't concerned about the personal hygiene of the disciples. That was really not the concern that they had at all. In fact, good health practices really didn't figure into their criticism of Jesus nor his disciples. Rather, their complaint came because they viewed the disciples' lack of washing their hands as them ignoring the Jewish traditions that had been put in place in order to ensure obedience to the law of Moses. In other words, as we're going to see this morning, Washing of hands before eating was all about ritual purification. It was all about ceremony, and it was ceremonial in nature. Today, we're going to examine this confrontation that occurs. We're going to see how Jesus initially responds to it. And the Lord willing, we're going to come back to this passage, the later part of this passage next week, in order for us to see the conclusion to what Jesus has to teach 
regarding this specific incident. But let's begin the reading this morning in, in Mark chapter 7, verse 1. This will set the stage for us today. Notice that the Bible says this, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the disciples and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, that is Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together today. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that we know that we can come to it and open it and read it and examine it and study it, and that through it you will instruct us. You will instruct us and show us things about ourselves, you will instruct us and show us things about you. And you will, and through your word and through your spirit working through your word, you will bring us into an understanding of what is necessary, about what, what situation we find ourselves in in life. And Father, because that's the case, you will draw us to yourself through your word. We pray that that would happen today, that we would leave this place as men and women who have been changed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. I had the privilege of serving in the United States Navy. I did that for uh, almost four and a half years. And while I was in, I served as a cryptologic technician. Um, long story short, I had a top secret security clearance that I was able to, uh, to deal with highly classified and, and, and sensitive data. Inevitably, or invariably, I should say, in every building that I worked, it was always on a remote part of the base. It was kind of always snuck away out someplace, and it was guarded by large, tall fences that had razor wire around the top of them. There were gun-toting guards who had a guard shack in, in just the, the specific place where you could enter that fence, and uh, you weren't able to get beyond that, that uh, guard shack without having the proper clearance to move past it. 
while I having that clearance, even though I had a clearance, once I got past that guard shack, I had to have a special set of security codes to actually get into the building. Once I got into the building, I had to have another special set of security codes to get into the actual place inside the building where I did my job. Now, you, you sound that, listen to that, and it may all sound like a bit of overkill, but from the standpoint of security, from the standpoint of protecting classified data from being stolen and falling into the hands of those that we would not want to see it fall into, well, then one begins to understand why all of these were critical steps that had to take place. Uh, you see, the fence, the guards, the security codes, all of those things were means of protection. Well, in, in the text that I just read from you for, from Mark chapter 7, we're alerted to a fence that was set up to protect the Mosaic law. This fence was the oral tradition of the Jews. It's referred to there in verse 5 of our text as the tradition of the elders. Now, the tradition of the elders consisted of, of extra-biblical regulations that had been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And they were, they were taught to be a means of protecting the law. Because as long as you did what these oral traditions said to do, or you didn't do what the oral tradition said not to do, then you never had to worry about getting close enough to the law, which was on the inside of that fence, to worry about breaking it. Consequently, as I said, the tradition of the elders became a fence of protection around the law. But over time, through these generations, the tradition of the elders became more important to the Jews than even the law itself. And that's an incredibly important concept for us to get our minds around this morning when we come to this text in Mark chapter 7. I provided for you a very simple outline today. A lot of times my outlines are a little more in-depth than they are today. Today is just a very simple outline to help you understand the flow of the text. And the flow of the text really comes to us by, by us recognizing that in verses 1 through 5, we have the first point that I want you to see, and, and what the text presents for us is the confrontation. The confrontation that takes place. Now, what we need to understand is that in Old Testament law, according to Exodus 30, according to Exodus 40, according to Leviticus 22, the Mosaic law prescribed that priests, it was necessary for them to go through ceremonial washing of their hands. The law, however, never required for others to wash their hands in any particular ceremonial way before eating. Nevertheless, over the centuries, as it passed down from one generation and as the, the tradition of the elders came into be, they, they became to understand that, that though washing of one's hands at one point was something that would have identified the priesthood of the Jews, it later became the washing of the hands was a way that you could readily identify a Jew among Gentiles because all Jews were required to wash their hands before they ate. Now, let me reiterate one more time. The washing of the hands here was not for hygienic purposes. It was purely ritualistic. It was ceremonial in nature. You see, as, as John MacArthur has, has written, these folks were hardly concerned about sanitation, but they were obsessed with ritual tradition. And Mark explains just how widespread this cultural culturally expected ritualistic washing had become in verse 3. Notice what, what Mark says. He says, For the Pharisees and all 
of the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. The hand-washing ritual basically went like this. The Jew would, would, would take their hands and put them together and turn their fingers upward, and then water would be poured over their hands, and the water would run down the back of the hands and, and down to the wrist and then drip off. And there had to be at least as much as an eggshell and a half worth of water or it didn't count. And it would go down and drip off the wrists. And then you would turn your hands the other direction and the same amount of water would be poured down over the wrist and it would go down and drip off the ends of the fingers. And then one would take their fists and rub them together in a ceremonial way to show that they had washed and now were considered ceremonially clean. Now, we should note that this that had once been just for the priesthood was now something that the tradition of the elders had made normative for all Jews. But it didn't stop just there. Notice also that it says in verse 4, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And some would even say that that means that they bathe. They didn't just wash their hands. They actually would have to bathe. Why? Because in the marketplace, they could come in contact with Gentiles. They could come in contact with Samaritans. They could come in contact with other Jews who were ceremonially unclean, and that would make them unclean, and so they would have to wash before they ate. Furthermore, they would, have to, they would have to wash such things as their cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches. In other words, what Mark is making us understand is that the tradition of the elders had spread to include a lot of different things. It wasn't just for the priests and it wasn't just for washing before they ate. It had now spread to a number of different issues. It had become much more of an elaborate and meticulous affair. Now... 2,000 years removed from that, we might look at this and this whole ritualistic washing and, and think, well, that's harmless enough. I mean, really, how bad can that be? I mean, honestly, I'd like it if Charlie would wash a little more often. So, we, you know, maybe we need to... Uh, how bad can it be to have these washings and the, these, these ceremonial cleansings? The issue is not with the practice. The issue was within how it was enforced. You see, history goes on to reveal that by the time of Christ, rabbis had turned hand-washing into a salvation issue. As, the, as uh, the Jerusalem Talmud asserts, it says this, whoever is firmly implanted in the land of Israel, who speaks the holy language, who eats his food in purity as is required by the hand-washing ritual, and recites the Shema morning and evening, that is one who is assured of life in the world to come. So in other words, if you did not do all of these things, then you could not be assured of your salvation. And even more pertinent to this text, you were considered an unclean outcast. So... What we see is that if the tradition of the elders was a fence that was set up to, erected to go around the law to protect the law, then the guards who took care of that fence were the scribes and the Pharisees. They looked at that as their personal responsibility. And that explains why in this text they were so upset with Jesus and his disciples. Why they, as, as verse number 2 says, they found fault with them. You see, according to verses 1 and 2, these religious leaders they had come from Jerusalem... And they had come probably as a suspicious delegation. They had probably come to trap Jesus. 
And when they came, they observed that the disciples, some of his disciples, did not eat the way that they should. They ate bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands. And in their mind, that was just simply abhorrent. That constituted a flouting of the law. It constituted a complete disregard for the moral authority of the law. And it made the disciples unclean lawbreakers. And consequently, since they were Jesus' disciples, they went to Jesus and said, you're responsible for them. Why do you let them do what you do? Why do your disciples, verse 5, not walk according to, or why do they not adhere to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Now, before we go any further, we know that this is not the first time that the scribes and Pharisees have confronted Jesus. We, we've seen that back in chapters 2 and 3. There they confronted Jesus because of who he sat down at the table and ate with. They said, you're eating with, with, with sinners and tax collectors. They, they didn't like the fact that the, that the disciples were going through the grain fields on a Sabbath day, breaking off pieces of grain and eating it because they considered that to be work. They got really angry with Jesus and even plotted to kill him because he healed a man with a withered hand on a Sabbath day. This, this confrontation that takes place here in chapter 7 is really just a, a continuation of an ongoing dispute that was happening between the religious leaders of Jesus' day and with Jesus himself. And so that explains the confrontation, verses 1 through 5. And it sets the stage for a thundering reply from Jesus that begins in verse 6. And it's the second point that I want you to note now on your outline. The second point is simply this. We're going to look at the response. We're going to look at Jesus' response in verses 6 through 8. Jesus issues a scathing response to these, the question that the scribes and Pharisees pose. They want to know, why do your disciples not eat the way they're supposed to? Following the tradition of the elders. Jesus doesn't answer them. What he does say, though, is very interesting. Notice what he says. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 29. And in doing so, he indicts the scribes and Pharisees. He says to them, well, or rightly, or correctly, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. There are three things, really, that we learn. I didn't include this on your outline. You're welcome to write it down. Three things we learn about the scribes and Pharisees based upon the way that Jesus applies this text to them. First thing we learn is that they're hypocrites. Hypocrites. All of us probably know what a hypocrite is. We've learned it. It's a very negative connotation. It's somebody who plays, to be, plays themselves off as one thing, but they're really something else. It didn't start out as such a negative word, though. In Greek, it, it was actually used to describe what an actor was. In, in, in Greek plays, the actors would hold up masks in front of their faces, and then they would play a part. And that part was, was often a very good part. It was a, it, they, were, they were actors. They were helping tell a story. But the issue was is that the person, the mask that you saw was not the personality behind the mask. And that's where Jesus began to seize in upon that idea of being a hypocrite, an actor. You're somebody who, who plays a part on the outward appearance, but behind the mask, you're somebody completely different. Jesus basically said, look, you play a public role before men as people whose lives are devoted to God. But the fact is your attitudes and your actions demonstrate that you really don't know God at all. In other words, you may look good on the outside, but on the inside you're corrupt. He not only said that about them here, he's even more direct in, a, in another part of the, the, the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28, 
Notice how he describes them there. Jesus, Jesus pronounces judgment upon the scribes and Pharisees there and says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are all like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also appear outwardly righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Clearly, Jesus recognized that the emphasis that these religious leaders placed upon obedience to the tradition of the elders was not because they truly wanted to worship God. In fact, that's, that really brings us to the second thing we learn about them here as Jesus applies this text to them. We learn that their hearts were actually distant from God. Their lips said one thing. The language of their heart was something completely different. I like the way that Sinclair Ferguson has put it. He says that they pretended to be near to God their whole lives were regulated by religious duties and activities, but the truth was they had really set their hearts on someone else, themselves. In reality, their devotion to the tradition of the elders had caused them to turn their focus upon themselves, upon their own doings, and upon their own uh, ways of being able to keep it and how they could check to make sure everybody else was living in the same accord. And as a result of that, they had turned themselves into being idolaters. Furthermore, we recognize that because their lips spoke one language in their heart, which represents the internal core of who they are, spoke a different language, then we see once again the hypocrisy. They pretended to love God, pretended to worship Him, but it was all contrived, it was unbiblical, and as we find here, it was unacceptable. The unacceptable fact of their worship is made clear by the fact that, that Isaiah says, in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. That actually leads us to the third thing we learn about them here. The third thing we learn about the scribes and the Pharisees is that they place their tradition above Scripture. This is where we actually see that their traditions were more important to them than the Word of God itself was. Verse 8 says, For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. The tradition had taken precedence over God's Word. To quote Ferguson once more, he says, The observation of man-made external rules had taken the place of inward spiritual graces. Holiness was being judged by what could be seen. But the Bible clearly teaches us is that it's only man who looks on the outward appearances. Quite frankly, that's all that we can truly see. But we appeal to God. God is the one who sees past the externals, past the measurables, past the things that can be held, touched, and seen. And He looks at the heart. And as Jesus makes clear, the heart of the scribes and the Pharisees were far from Him. So... What we see is that rather than protecting the law, the tradition of the elders had actually come to undermine and even obscure the very law that it was intended to protect. In effect, the system of external washings to which the scribes and the Pharisees were so committed actually trivialized the concept of inner purity that the external washings were intended to symbolize. And brothers and sisters, this is what I want you to know. Legalism always does that. Whenever it shows up, 
in any of our lives, in any of our worship, in any of our ways of understanding God, when legalism shows up like that, when it shows up focusing on the externals and on the measurables and on the observable and elevates those kind of things that fall into those categories into a position that ultimately displaces that which is most important, which is the worship of the heart. It's the sincere love of God and the humble obedience to His Word. Well, whenever that happens, we find ourselves in dire straits. Now, the guardians of the law, they have confronted Jesus. They basically accused Him of being a lawbreaker and His disciples of being a lawbreaker. But in reality, based upon what Jesus has said back to them, they were the ones who were actually guilty of the real crimes. They neglected the commandment of God. And they influenced many others to do the same thing. Their hands may have been washed and cleansed, but their hearts were not. And that leads to the final section that this text, that we're going to look at this morning, verses 9 through 13. Because we've looked at the confrontation, we've looked at the response of Jesus. Now he illustrates what he's just said by showing us how that had taken place. So we look at the illustration. Point number three, the illustration. Jesus says to those trying to trap him, he says, All too well... You reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. And that statement in and of itself just shows us to what level they had elevated their traditions over and above the Word of God. And so what we might even say is this, is that they had failed to keep the main thing the main thing. And whenever that happens, everything gets thrown out of balance. And Jesus gives us an example of this. Notice what he says. He, gives them a, he tells them about the fifth commandment, which says, honor your father and your mother. And then he also reminds them of the consequences of failing to uh, obey that commandment. According to the law in, verse, in Exodus 21, Leviticus 20, and Proverbs 20, it says, he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Now, inherent in honoring one's father and mother would be to love them and even to provide care for them should they not be physically or even financially able to care for themselves, particularly later in life. For a child to turn their back on their parents would have been considered the equivalent of placing a curse on them, which would have made them guilty of breaking the fifth commandment and, and make them worthy of death. But according to their tradition, notice, the Jews had created a loophole. And that loophole is worked out by what we read there in verses 11 through 13. Jesus said, but you say, if a man says to his father and mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is, parenthetically, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down. The word Corban actually is transliterated from Hebrew into Greek. The word literally means something that someone has vowed to give to God. And that vow could be taken to give money. It could have been precious stones or metals. It could be an animal. It could be uh, vegetables that were, were harvested. Those things could be set aside and the owner of those things could say, I am setting this, this apart to be given to the Lord and to His work. And in that regard, this is a very good thing. 
The tradition of the elders allowed for this to take place. And what it further allowed for is that once that vow had been taken, these things could not then be used for other things. How it was being abused was is that people were taking the vow and they were placing all of their earthly goods into that and says that it was devoted to God. And the reason that they were doing that is because it didn't all have to be taken to the synagogue or to the temple and given at that particular moment. In fact, they were able to still administrate over it and use it for themselves as long as it was still in their possession. But what it didn't allow for is for them to take any of it and give it to anybody else. And in that way, they were keeping everything for themselves. And so consequently, when a mother or a father had gotten older and they needed some help, the son could say, you know, I wish I could help you, but I've already pronounced Corbin over all of my goods and I can't give of them to you. And Jesus points this out and says, do you think that that was what the law, when it said honor your father and mother, had in mind? But because of your tradition." And because of your adherence to those traditions, you will allow a person to actually break the law which says honor your father and mother so that they can keep the tradition that you've given them of allowing them to devote their goods to God. And Jesus says, that is just one example of how you have elevated your traditions of the elders over and above the law itself. And then he adds this. He says, and many such things you do. In other words, he could have gone on and on and on and given them more examples, but he stopped with that one because it was clear enough. Now, what our text then has revealed to us is that Jesus came under attack by the pious religious leaders of his day because his disciples did not keep the tradition of elders by not washing their hands before they ate. Jesus responded by exposing the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees and pointing out that while they may talk the talk and look the part, their hearts were far from God. Such was evidenced by the fact that most, the most important thing to them was the externals. The most important thing within, to them was the measurables, the things that could be observed, which proved to themselves just how righteous they were. In fact, these things were more important than the Word of God itself. So what are we supposed to do with this? That's an exposition of it. That's an explanation of the text. What are we supposed to do with it? How does this apply? Well, I think in some ways the best thing that we can do with a text like this is take just one step back and look at it across the whole landscape. Because I would submit to you this morning that the debate that exists between Jesus and these hypocritical religious leaders is an epic battle between grace and merit. And what's at stake is the whole, in this whole picture, is nothing short of the means by which you and I can be saved. I want you to consider this. According to the scribes in the Pharisees' view, nothing was more important than what one did. Their view of God was that he was a, he was a God who hems his people in by rules and regulations. And therefore, the only people that he is pleased with are those who meticulously keep those traditions of the elders. In other words, keeping those traditions was the only way to ensure that a covenant relationship with God could be maintained. The scribes and the Pharisees effectively believed that salvation ultimately came through merit, by earning and by keeping the rules. Jesus, on the other hand, 
taught that God was a gracious father. A gracious father to those who would trust in him. He taught that God was willing to forgive sinners who would acknowledge their sin and repent. Jesus taught that salvation comes not by merit, but by grace through faith in him. The legalists, scribes, and Pharisees, in their attempts to protect themselves and others from breaking the rules of the law of Moses, really missed the whole point of the law. It is true that the law was given to point to God's holy requirements based upon his holy character. But it was also given to show us that apart from his grace and mercy, we would be crushed by the law's demand. Therefore, the law was given, as the Apostle Paul makes clear in both the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, it was given to drive us to Jesus. It was given to drive us to the only one who ever was able to keep the law in the fullness of its demands. So let me ask you this morning. What is your view of God? Do you view Him as a distant lawmaker, who hems you in with rules and regulations and requirements? Do you view him as one who is keeping track of your good deeds versus your bad deeds and that you are hoping that at some point in the future your good's going to outweigh your bad? Is that how you see him? Or do you recognize him to be a gracious and merciful father who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness toward those who recognize their sinfulness and their need of forgiveness and who will come to him in their humility and bow before him recognizing that apart from his grace and apart from his mercy, they have no hope. Friend, the difference between those two views of God and those two views of salvation is the difference between an eternity in heaven and an eternity in hell. The Bible clearly states in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift from God, not of works, lest anybody should boast. The scribes and the Pharisees believed that they would be able to one day stand before God because they had kept the tradition of the elders. In other words, they believed that they would stand before him because they had clean hands. But their hearts remained far from God. The Bible tells us that it is only through repentance that we are given clean hearts. And then in the purifying of our hearts, we will live a life of obedience to God. Not in order to be saved, but because we have been saved. That then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. In our pride, we must never elevate adherence to external rituals, rules, or traditions above God's Word, which clearly teaches us that in humility we are to come to God in repentance and faith in Jesus. The call of the gospel is to come and repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross in order that you might be set free from the penalty of your sins. The gift of salvation 
is possible only because Jesus provided it. The question is, is will you receive it today? The scribes and the Pharisees refused and they perished in their sins. I pray that you will not follow in their example because brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.